So Dan, I'm guessing one thing you don't miss working from home is your commute every day. Well, yeah, you know, it's funny. I never thought I would say this, but I do actually miss it a little bit at the moment, I think. I'm a big podcast listener myself, and I just have this massive backlog right now. I'm just not getting through as many as I usually would, and I think that's partly why. Ah, uh, okay. On a slightly deeper note, I think other people have said this as well, it does create a nice sort of stage between work and home that allows you to sort of wind down a little bit, which I miss actually without it there. Yeah, that's true. And I cycle to work. So I do miss that daily cycle and kind of clearing my mind before I sort of go to non-work mode. So yeah, completely get that. Welcome to Investment Uncut. In Investment Uncut, we cut through the noise when it comes to investing. We're digging deeper to try and bring clarity to your investment decisions. I'm Dan Mikulskis. And I'm Mary Spencer. Investment Uncut is brought to you by the investment team at LCP. LCP provide investment advice to some of the largest institutional investors in the UK, including pension funds, wealth managers and sovereign funds. Find out more at lcp.uk.com. This week on Investment Uncut, we're joined by special guest Rory Sturrock, investment consultant at LCP. Rory, welcome to the show. Hi, Dan. Hi, Mary. It's good to be here, even if it's virtually here. Hi, Rory. Yeah, quite. We should say quickly that as well as being an investment consultant at LCP, Rory came up with the idea for this podcast. So Rory, thanks so much for that. And where did you get the idea from? So I think like, like both of you, I like to listen to podcasts on my commute. So cut down on that a bit recently with not commuting, but particularly the Animal Spirits podcast. And I was listening to that one day and thinking, LCP, we've got loads of great insight on similar topics. I'm sure we could do something similar. And the idea went from there. And yeah, you guys have t- done a really good job of taking it forward. We've certainly had a lot of fun recording it. I'm a fan of that podcast too. It is definitely worth checking out. So Rory, could you tell the listeners a bit more about your role at LCP as a consultant? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm an investment consultant in our London office and my day-to-day role is mostly helping clients design and implement investment strategies to meet their objectives, as well as sort of servicing my day-to-day clients. I also am part of investment strategy group, which sort of coming up with investment ideas to share around the firm. And I also research liability hedging strategies for our institutional clients. Great. And Rory, why don't you tell us one thing we should know about you that we won't find on your LinkedIn profile? I once did a half marathon in the snow and it wasn't planned to be in the snow. But um, (laughs) yeah, we showed up to do the half marathon and we were about half a mile from the start point and about 20 minutes before the start of the race and it started chucking it down with snow. I wasn't in particularly great shape at that time, so I was sort of hoping that that would be sufficient for them to cancel the race. But yeah, it still went ahead. Did you get PB? That was my first one, so it was a PB by default. Of course, yeah, that's great. So yeah, beaten it since, but it wasn't much of a benchmark to beat, to be honest, due to, yeah, I guess my fitness. And I'll blame it more on the conditions than the fitness. Yeah, good job. So today on Investment Uncut, we're doing another special episode. We're doing another book club episode. So this week, we're discussing the book, The Man Who Solved the Market. That was Greg Zuckerman's description and sort of biographical investigative story of Renaissance Technologies, famous hedge fund founded by Jim Simons. Book came out, I think it was back end of, of last year, 2019. We've been reading that the last couple of weeks. So really looking forward to getting into that today. I suppose first question to ask to you, Rory, I guess, is what stood out to you reading the book? So a few things. So I think one thing that stood to me was even though that Simons and the other creators sort of committed to this quant-based approach is how often sort of things like behavioral themes and things that we see 
on sort of non-quant based approaches still came into it i mean you have bits where like simon's is initially uncomfortable with if he can't explain the model's output still not trusting it and sort of being sort of anchored so i guess sort of the non-quant way of investing and this is someone who's obviously like they're a mathematician and they've committed to this quant based investing and not just within the fund but obviously you see a lot of other investors being skeptical of the approach and i think there's sort of like a maybe behavior angle sort of like the group think of other investors thinking that quant based investing can't work sort of the traditional way of doing it's better and i thought that was sort of quite emblematic of group think was one of my observations great point isn't it? i think there was one point in the book where he says that there were some of the people who worked there who didn't even look at whether the fund was up or down on any given day. They just didn't know. They were just there doing maths for, for all, the, all they cared. But then obviously there was another group that did look at whether it was up or down and did get a little bit emotional and around it, as you'd expect, if it had a bad day or a good day. And so those two groups of people coming into a bit of conflict when obviously when things were going badly and one group didn't really understand the other. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that definitely struck me, which I think sort of plays into that a bit, is you sort of expect that with a quant model, someone understands why it's giving the output it's giving and I think it struck me a couple of times through the book that they were so they trusted the model a lot and as you said Rory there were definitely times where sort of gremlins came in and they struggled a bit on the behavioral side but they also seemed in many cases quite happy to implement trades that they didn't even understand sort of the root of why the trade was being implemented or why it worked so that kind of I found maybe I just I took it stronger than it was intended in the book but it struck me a lot that you see these sort of black box approaches and I always expected that with a black box approach yeah the outside investor maybe doesn't understand what's going on but someone in the middle does I don't know if you guys took that those comments in that same way Definitely. Yeah. And that's a more controversial angle to it, isn't it? Because a lot of quant managers will say there should be some kind of behavioral or economic explanation behind the factors. Otherwise, they aren't going to persist. And there's no reason why you should be rewarded for it if there isn't a real explanation or you could just data mine something sort of thing. So that was an interesting one. And it's that divides the quant universe, I think. Some people would disagree with him and say you should be able to find explanations. Other people, and obviously his track record speaks for itself, would say you don't need to because the model can find them. It almost felt some people within the firm, there was almost this purism where sort of that view that you had to explain it, they sort of viewed that as sort of like betraying the model slightly and that you you should trust the model. I was thinking sort of like when we give advice clients, obviously we're not fund managers, so we're not doing sort of what Simon's doing. But when we communicate to our clients, like if we can't explain why we've come up with the recommendation, then it's obviously really difficult. But I still think when they communicate to their investors, it must be difficult for them if they can't explain why they if they have a bad quarter well i didn't have many bad quarters but if they did have a bad performance it must be really difficult for them to explain to investors exactly that isn't it because we actually talked about this before in connection with the big short that communication as a manager when you're underperforming is of course really really key michael burry fell out with his investors back in 2008 because he couldn't really communicate that well what was going on but you're right it's going to be pretty tricky if there isn't really a clear-cut explanation the point you make about the purism of it rory i mean that really shines through to me right and that was something that's quite different to what they've done, certainly different to what had gone before. They really were non-Wall Street people. They hadn't really worked for banks. They just didn't come from a kind of P&L, money-making kind of fund management type thing. They kind of saw it really as a, a kind of mathematical, kind of theoretical sort of challenge. 
I thought at times it was interesting what motivated the characters because I think as you say like a lot of it started as this sort of almost like academic pursuit and something that they wanted fast moving maybe like a different culture to what they had in academia but then over time there became issues things like people getting jealous of their colleague earning more than them even though they'd earned 20 million dollars in a year so I found that question how like their motivation maybe it was only some of the characters but their motivation switched from this academical pursuit and can we make a hedge fund that beats the market to I care about the bottom line more yeah although I read that as almost an extension of the academia thing I think when you've got these and when you read the book it's obvious how impressive all these academics are and they come from being the best in their field and so it's really difficult I think human nature is to compare yourself to others and so for them they go from being the most clever person in their group and then the only way they can then get recognition in this other environment is to earn more than their peers so the absolute number has no almost no bearing on it they could all be earning a tenth of what they earn and yet they would still be complaining if they earn less than someone else because it's the peer analysis that they're really focusing on and yet when they're then comparing themselves in terms of the way they invest actually the reason they survive and a number of hedge funds fail throughout the book really is because they stick to their guns and they don't get swayed by what their peers are doing so it's quite an interesting difference there I think maybe I hadn't sort of appreciated like how much academia was sort of driven by sort of almost personal glory. And there was a bit at one point they're talking about how a lot of the academics found it a lot more refreshing when there was like a collaborative environment at Renaissance for them to work in. Whereas when they were in academia, there was a little bit of collaboration, but it was almost like competitive and you want your name on the paper. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That's always surprised me a little bit when I talk to academics, people I know, somehow you can often have this slightly naive view of academia as sort of people who just want to contribute and make the world better sort of thing. But we're all just competitive, aren't we, by nature? So, you know, and and they've got the glory of who gets the name first on the paper, who's on the paper. And Yeah. That sort of links back, I guess, to they caring to be the one who earns the most or earn more than a colleague. Maybe that goes back to that academic thing of wanting your name on the paper. I think so. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. So I resisted this book for a bit. I'm going to be honest. I sort of pushed back and I was a little bit, a bit worried about it because I felt there was this sort of, you know, the way it works with these kind of authors, they figure out the story they want to tell and then they write that story. And I was worried about this very simplistic story of maths genius solves the market and makes loads of money kind of thing. It felt like a very convenient story, but I really resisted that because I just thought it can't be that simple because so many other smart mathematicians have done this. So many other people have hired tens and hundreds of PhD mathematicians over the years and built quant models and had very good results by most stretches, but no one has come close to matching the sort of track record that he talks about in the book for Renaissance. So I was worried about that sort of simplistic kind of narrative. And I don't know that the book totally avoided that narrative, but it did a decent job of skirting around it, I think. It's really interesting, isn't it? Because I think he does a relatively good job of acknowledging that there were lots of other funds, as you said, Dan. But when I was reading it, it was slightly difficult to work out a common theme of why Renaissance survived when lots of others failed. And they failed at various different points with various different periods of market volatility. And in some cases, it almost just felt like luck. And I guess that in particular in the hedge fund space, it's the one that survives that you see the record of. And all the ones that failed, you don't. One thing that also stuck out to me was the timeline and the story bears a lot of similarities with the founding of Bridgewater, which Ray Dalio writes up in his book, Principles at the Start. The timeline's almost identical in that he was, for most of the 19, late 1970s, 1980s, he was sort of messing around doing various things that weren't really working. And then early 90s, suddenly it all just worked and it sort of took off. You often see this in certain industries, don't you? You see it in tech a little bit where a lot of the very successful firms were founded by individuals at a certain point, who came of age at a certain point in time. 
the Steve Jobs, the Bill Gates kind of, you get these eras of people where there's clearly an opportunity presents itself. And if you were quick enough and good enough to get through and get big, you can then sort of squeeze out all other competition for a long time. And I wonder if there was a little bit of that with, with the Renaissance, with DE Shaw, with Bridgewater, Two Sigma, there's a few others that he mentions. AQR, I guess, came along a little bit later. So it's maybe not quite fair to put them in the same bunch, but a little bit of that. But even then, you've got the track records of, say, Bridgewater and AQR, and they've done really well, but they've had multiple years of negative returns and bad performance, which Renaissance just hasn't had. So I didn't quite get that from the book. No, and I imagine it's partly, I mean, throughout the book, it's made very clear how secretive the company and the individuals were on exactly what their methods were and how they worked, but also that they didn't always fully understand why the model was doing what it was. So I'm not entirely sure from reading the book that they could all tell you exactly why they never had bad years. I think obviously it starts out when sort of at the very beginning, the author saying that he basically got told, good luck making this book, you're not going to find out much. And I sort of wonder whether we did get the full picture in the book and whether there's some trading secrets that obviously you're not expecting everything to be divulged in the book, but maybe there's some more going on than what we can see in the book was my take on how it had done so much better than other funds that they're not going to explain it and that they're almost sort of quite proud of their secrecy yeah for sure i suppose we wouldn't expect to, to explain everything i was listening to an interesting podcast actually last weekend that had cliff asness on it the founder of aqr and he actually referred to this a little bit which is quite interesting and his sort of take was he sort of said it was down to capacity and the size of the fund so he seemed to say the fact that they kept medallion so much smaller i think it was limited to five billion for a while and then now it's 10 billion the fact they kept it small meant it could do different things whereas if you look at their other more institutional funds that are bigger they have track records that look a bit more like an aqr so in other words still very good but have multiple years where things go down so he said something like you know as soon as jim simons tries to run at institutional scale he looks a bit more like the rest of us sort of thing it was kind of his take on it i suppose he he might know as well as anyone i guess and am I right in thinking the only investors in Medallion are Renaissance employees or that was the case at one stage? That's what it seemed to say. Well, since 2003, I think it says in the book, doesn't it? Yeah. So it's been nearly 20 yeah. years. It's just been them in the fund. So we won't be putting our money into it anytime soon then? No. I, yeah, no, quite. Yeah. The ability to put money into it was a significant perk of working there after a certain time, wasn't it? And I think even if people retired and left, they still retained the right to keep money in it, which was obviously when it's compounding at whatever it was, 40% per annum, that's a quite a valuable right to have. Certainly, yeah, yeah. Okay, well, let's move on to a second question then. So what actually, we've touched on this a little bit already, but what surprised you in the book compared to maybe what you thought going into it? I'm happy to start on that one. One of the things that surprised me, and I think it was mentioned a couple of times, was in terms of the processes they followed, and perhaps this is just because they believe so much in their models, you sort of expect with a quant approach and the quant type managers we speak to these days certainly, I think, drive this point home that there's significant testing periods. So we make a tweak to the model. We test whether we think it's going to work first. We back test various types of testing. But it felt like on a number of occasions, a tweak was made to the model and it was live. It worked for a day, so they pushed it. <laughs> and maybe that's a sign of the times. And maybe it was slightly earlier in the book that that was happening a bit more than than it would do in today's environment. But that sort of surprised me a bit, I have to say. There's even bits where they're almost making like a routine update to some coding and they accidentally knock something out of place and then they find out they've lost loads of money the next day, which you'd have thought they'd have sort of tested it on like a test version first or something like that. It's not actually wired up to the markets. Yeah, you're right. Actually, that does make it seem a little bit amateur, doesn't it? I, you'd hope that larger, more institutional funds weren't doing it that way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But then, you know, again, the returns speak to themselves. So, One of the things that surprised me was 
the fees on the funds. And I mean, it's a hedge fund, so it's expecting big fee. But I think it was 5% base fee and then a chunky performance fee on top of that as well. Yeah, I mean, I honestly don't know how they could ever say that to an external client with a straight face. I've never heard anything like it, to be quite honest with you. And I know that we're talking 80s, 90s here, where it's sort of the Wild West in some ways. But I mean, that was kind of unbelievable. I don't know whether that was from the very start. It'd be surprising if they managed to get the initial clients in it. And I guess it's only when you've got such a good track that you could you can even think about doing that. But yeah, that is quite surprising, you're right. I also thought it was quite funny that in response to that criticism, Simon said, well, I'd pay that fee, <laughs> but you pay it to yourself. <laughs> yeah, that is a ridiculous, <laughs> ridiculous attempt at some kind of justification. Isn't yeah. It isn't going to fly. Yeah, yeah. Well, one other thing that struck and slightly surprised me was it felt when I was reading the book as if it was a really small world, the extent to which they kind of have already crossed paths with the people that they bring on board. And yet these are well, as written, they're sort of the mathematical elite of the US or global mathematical elite. And so it just, you always think that there's a big old world out there, but actually they very quickly grabbed in people with exactly the right experience and expertise. And maybe it's just because they were all the elite, but I was slightly surprised that they weren't, they weren't ever going on sort of headhunts to try and find these people. They just knew of them already. That's a really good point, actually. I've heard the author on a few podcasts as well. And one of the stories he sort of tells, he says that he felt that one of the real skills that Jim Simons has was building up the right group of people to do this and finding the right people with the right skills. And reading it, I thought to myself, is that a little bit of a reverse engineered story? I mean, a lot of these, we know what it's like in real world, right? Things emerge just randomly in a lot of ways. You end up working with certain people that you knew a little bit from the past and their friends and their colleagues and people you know. And I sort of felt maybe stretching it a little bit to turn it into that story and that it maybe was just a slightly random crew of people who were all very smart and just sort of through a process of kind of evolution got to a really, really strong team. Yeah. I did buy into it probably a little bit more than you, Dan. I think what sold me on that and Simon's getting together the right team as well was sort of the fact he'd done it in academia before where he sets up the maths department at Stony Brook University I'm not quite sure what usual age you'd be in academia doing that, but you seem quite young to be sort of setting up a new world-class maths department at a university and attracting all these people. And then the fact that he sort of repeated that, I mean, it's like a different context, but sort of did something similar, building up a good team at Renaissance. To me, I sort of took away from that, that maybe this was someone who not only was academically very smart, but also had those sort of business management skills as well. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. One thing that surprised me was there was clearly a huge turning point in the mid to late 90s, which was actually about 20 years, really, since he'd first started trying to run money. Another thing that surprised me about the book is that the sheer timescale of the whole thing. I mean, the book chronicles sort of 50 years of history over a few hundred pages. So it really has to move fast to take it all in. But the book obviously sets up the hiring of Bob Mercer and Robert Brown in the mid 90s for the guys from the IBM speech recognition team as a really sort of pivotal moment where before then there was sort of a pretty successful small time hedge fund and then after that they sort of really changed their trajectory yeah yeah i can't remember actually how did those two come to work there i mean were they friends or associates they were ibm weren't they yeah they already worked closely together at ibm so i think they almost came like a package originally What's super interesting how they talked about the similarities between software that does speech recognition, which is what they were doing, and software to try and model the markets, where effectively you're trying to build a probabilistic model of what's going to come next based on what's already come. Bayesian kind of updating, where you're saying, this is the state of the world, this is the new information, this is my updated belief about the possible future states. That was pretty interesting, right? 
I really liked it. Yeah. I mean, I did maths at uni, so I guess there's an element that all of the sort of, yeah, Bayesian and Brownian motion and everything that was being referred to, I was sort of remembering little snippets from my degree. But I thought it was a really interesting and it made me think, do finance experts make better investors because they don't approach it as a finance problem or a money making problem? They approach it as a, as we said, sort of near the start, they approach it as a problem that needs to be solved. And actually academics are the best place to solve problems. It doesn't really matter what kind of problem it is. But then, you know, as we've also already mentioned, they still had those gremlins where behavioural features were coming into their decision making. So, Yeah, it's difficult, isn't it? Because it's strange to present the markets as a problem to be solved because it just isn't in most senses. There is no one answer. There's no one equation that solves it all. You know, there's so much random noise, so uncertain and volatile and stuff. And that's quite a different domain than what a lot of academics work in, I suppose. But the similarity to the speech thing was interesting because that maybe is, is also a more sort of uncertain domain where you're just working with probability assessments the whole doesn't you don't think of it like that do you but that's obviously how it works out in terms of the, the speech tools what's also interesting is obviously it really is quite recently that those speech recognition things have actually come of age and worked and there was sort of a bit of a sense in the book that they were losing a bit of steam in the 90s and they've been working on it obviously thought they were close to the sort of breakthroughs they've had but it's taken another 20 years really to get it really working yeah yeah I found that mad because effectively it's a technology that underlies things like Alexa and Google Home. And I just maybe naively thought that had been stuff that had been worked on for like the last 10, 15 years rather than the last 30 years. It was funny because I actually interviewed a guy probably, I think, more than 10 years ago now who'd also done a lot of work in, in speech recognition. We didn't end up hiring him. It was a previous role. I remember him saying, that he got quite frustrated with that whole area because there just hadn't been the progress. There's a lot of promise, but the progress just wasn't really there and just always seemed to be sort of just over the horizon. So it's kind of funny that that's been a long time sort of coming. It tells you a bit about technology, doesn't it? It can seem to be almost there, a lot of smart people working on it, but then it can still take a little bit longer. It speaks recognition is a little bit like the hedge fund in the fact that there was lots of fiddling about and not really going anywhere. And then all of a sudden you got a breakthrough, it all clicked and the hedge fund started making money or speech recognition technology became something that was sort of like commercially viable. Yeah, that was my thought as well, Rory, in terms of kind of where there's lots of different types of pieces that need to fit together. And so with the hedge fund and Simons, they sort of realized data was important, but they didn't have the right data. They didn't have frequent enough data. They didn't have this, they didn't have that. So actually the ideas that they had right near the start suddenly started really working once another piece fit into place when they had the daily data. And similar probably with the speech recognition, you can do all the maths and the formulae and the code, but until the system that recognizes the sound in the first place comes into place, the whole thing doesn't fit together. That's a really good point. We're talking about surprises here, but we're leaving out the elephant in the room here, right, in terms of the big surprise of the book. But I suppose it's not really a surprise because you know it's coming. But the last 100 pages or so about the US election in 2016, right? I mean, wow. Yeah, I didn't see that coming, <laughs> I have to say. so. Was that really the story? I mean, would it have been a book without that, do you think? Or was that really what made it juicy enough to write up? It did make me wonder, I have to say. I enjoyed reading this book because, as you've already said, Dan, it's it, sort of spans about 50 years and I quite like books that move quite quickly so the first I don't know 400 pages or whatever it was was all moving pretty quickly things happening quite exciting because they all lived slightly crazy lives at times and then it felt like we slowed right down and we focused on the election and it was a matter of months and or a year maybe but it took almost as many pages as a, a span of a decade in the rest of the book so it did make me wonder the same thing. Yeah. So we had this situation, I guess, when you had one of the co-CEOs of the firm, Bob Mercer, who by then was a billionaire, effectively being one of the main contributors to putting Trump in the White House, basically, which 
somewhat shocked his colleagues who were all probably sort of semi-left of centre kind of Democrats. And Jim Simons actually given a lot of money to some of the Democratic candidates, was one of the biggest funders, I think, of a lot of Democratic candidates as well. These two guys having just enormous influence in, in politics over that period of time. I think if you didn't know the backgrounds of Bob Mercer and stuff, I think the way the book wrote it, if you didn't know that background was quite clever and the fact that it talks about him sort of almost teasing people with more left-leaning views in the canteen and stuff like that, which is almost like sort of, I guess, like a hint about of what's about to come. And it almost sort of implies that maybe he's sort of holds these views, but it's sort of just exaggerating them to what, yeah, needling his sort of more left-leaning colleagues. And then it actually turns out he believes enough in these views to, yeah, ultimately support Trump's White House bid. Yeah, it made me think, I guess there is an interesting point in there, not just the sort of the surprise at the end of the book or towards the end of the book, but also the idea of working with colleagues and working collaboratively and productively with colleagues when you have such differing views. Like you said, Dan Simons was one of the biggest contributors on the other side. And they did manage to see through that for a time, at least. It sort of made out that their political arguments in the office were almost quite good-natured, sort of bantery kind of debates, and that the people on the other side of it gave as good as they got as well. It's very hard to know. Later on, there was, I suppose, that David Majorman was implying that Bob Mercer had made almost sort of racist statements and stuff in the past, which obviously is a bit different kettle of fish entirely. It's hard to know what the atmosphere really was. And it comes back a little bit to, I was going to say, one of the things that didn't surprise me, but... (laughs) would have been nice if it was a surprise, I suppose, was the sort of diversity point, which I know we touched on in the big short as well, that all of the key characters in this book are men. And actually, the author even recognises that at one point and says, don't worry, women do come into this, but not for a few years or something like that, which I thought was interesting. But actually, as I said before, I think the key thing that you're looking for with diversity is diversity of thought and cognitive diversity and that sort of thing. And actually, Simons and Mercer having such differing views outside of work, maybe means they are different people that think in a different way. And that maybe means they worked better together for those years that they were vesting together. Yeah, it's a good point, actually. Was that a cognitively diverse group or not? I mean, it's tempting to say no, isn't it, I suppose, because they're all very much mathematicians, programmers. Book does highlight quite a lot of scenarios where there was good debate and stuff. So maybe that's one of the things they learned from academia, a good sense they could all sort of debate and challenge stuff. I think you can get cognitive diversity within academics because obviously you had some there that were more focused on the mathematical angle some were more on the programming some even on things like data cleansing so I mean I think that would have offered a degree of cognitive diversity I don't know if it's enough to just call it to say it was cognitively diverse but there's some within different strands of academia yeah yeah Okay, moving on quickly then. One thing we talked about quite favorably with The Big Short was the quality of some of the explanations of some of the technical financial aspects of it. So how do we think Greg Zuckerman did in this with explaining some of the more technical side of what they were doing? I thought he did fairly well. I don't think the explanations were quite as entertaining as Big Short. I mean, like Big Short's obviously a different kettle of fish in that regard, but I could follow it. But and just trying to think, could someone from like a less investment-orientated background follow it? I think probably. I thought they did fairly well on that. Yeah, I'd echo that. I thought he did pretty well. He drops in various elements of jargon, but you don't need to understand them, and he almost expects you not to. So I think he probably played it at about the right level. He gave enough detail for people that do have a maths sort of background that you don't think he's oversimplifying things. He understands there is a deeper level there, but he doesn't expect you to understand it to read the book. The target audience isn't a layman, is it? The target audience is someone who's got a bit of an interest in maths or a bit of an interest in markets. And I think it was a good level for that target audience. I don't think my take is it's not intended to be 
something that's going to be like a bestseller. Yeah, that's a good point. Is it? I suppose a business category book. I'm just trying to remember what some of the strategies he talks about. The basic sort of trend type strategies, doesn't he? He talks about the basic kind of data signals where it's kind of if coffee goes up on a Tuesday, it's got a better chance of going up on a Friday kind. And that sounds a little bit naive, doesn't it? To be honest, I mean, surely a non-finance person reading that would be thinking, surely it's not that easy. I don't know whether that signal that's just disappeared a little bit, or whether that still genuinely exists, or if it's just a real simplification of what it was they were doing. There are bits in it where it sort of like makes it sound what they're doing really complicated model. And then, as you say, it ends up being something quite easy to understand that price goes up on Tuesday, therefore it's going to fall on Friday. And you think, why does the model sound so complicated? And saying that it's doing these trades in like sort of almost higher orders that you can't see and then come up with something relatively simple. So maybe it's just sort of the way it's explained in the book to simplify it a little bit. And then on the equity side, he talks quite a lot about so-called pairs trades, doesn't he? Or even sort of basket trades where there's a sort of a group of stocks that the model decides are going to should ought to sort of move together for various reasons. And then it identifies one of them hasn't. So it kind of puts on a series of different trades with all the stocks, which overall are sort of neutral, but weight you towards things reverting back to kind of how they were, which, you know, again, it sort of makes sense. I thought it was quite a good explanation of those kind of market neutral type strategies and trades which are always a tricky one to explain aren't they what's going on there where you've got long and short positions yeah i thought he did that bit really well in terms of explaining it in a really simple way but making it obvious that it's not that simple to spot those trends i think examples are always quite powerful in this and i think when you say long short market neutral that can be confusing but when he talks about long coca-cola buy coca-cola sell pepsi then i think just having names like that just really helps the explanation and that was quite good the way he did that Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, how about characters? What do we reckon the characters, well, I mean, the real life people, aren't they? They're not characters, but what do we reckon to how they were developed in the book and who did we like and, and how did that stand out? I think, I mean, I don't want to keep comparing it to the big short, but characters weren't quite as engaging or wacky as off the wall as like the big short characters. I think he tried to put in sort of like a couple of sort of light hearted moments so yeah i thought the characters were semi-engaging and i sort of quite like the sort of adapting from the academic background coming into this sort of different environment angle of it and sort of the character development through that i personally don't think it was sort of like a character-led book it was more about the story would be my opinion I think that's fair, isn't it? I mean, just the time scale dictates that a bit. I mean, most of the events he was trying to cover there were decades and decades ago. So you're never going to paint a rich, particularly rich picture of something that happened 40 years ago. And also, you can't go into that much detail when you're trying to cover that sort of span of time, right? No, I think that's right. You can't be quite as descriptive. I just took it to be sort of biographical in that he's explaining what happened and he's focused a bit more on actions, like you said, than specific character development but I still I mean I really liked Simons as a character the way he was portrayed in the book because just things that struck me that again similar to comments already made that the sort of persistence the almost one-track mind not conforming to social norms yeah it's all quite familiar when we've looked at the big short as well where the people that were particularly good at investing or noticing these trends or they weren't afraid to not follow what other people were doing yeah, that's a great point. I've always got time for someone who walks around the office in flip-flops and shorts or whatever. And like he did. But you know what? I was wary that the book was trying to put Simons on a pedestal from the start, actually. So I kind of I kind of didn't want to like him. Obviously, he is presented as fairly likable, although there were a few questionable anecdotes. The one where he lights a cigarette out in the middle of a meeting and stubs it out in the cake in the middle of the meeting room or something when talking to a potential client. 
it was a health charity, health wasn't endowment. it? Yeah. yeah, that strikes you as a particular <laughs> thing to do. And there are a few other, I know he was trying to add some richness to it with some, I don't know whether that was supposed to be quirky. Were you supposed to think, oh, that how quirky and how unself-aware? Or were you supposed to think, oh my God, what an absolute douche kind of thing to think that that's a sensible human thing to do. It's kind of, and maybe he just left it deliberately a bit open, which I kind of like, actually, I respect that. If he's just saying, look, here's some facts about someone, you judge what they are. Yeah. I suppose I read it as stereotypical academic lack of social skills was the way I took it. But maybe I, they'd won me over on Simons before that, perhaps. If they made a movie out of this, do you see Ryan Gosling playing Jim Simons or is it more of a Christian Bale <laughs> kind of character? Definitely Christian Bale. Yeah. Definitely. I think it would be Axe, wouldn't it, that Ryan Gosling plays? Yeah, definitely Axe. Attractive, a bit more focused on his looks, maybe a slight anger problem. <laughs> I could see Ryan Gosling playing that character pretty well. Yeah, yeah, interesting. On that note, should we go on to our um, scoring system that we've got? We've got four categories. Well, sort of four. We've got entertainment value, characters, unput down ability, and accuracy. And then the bonus question is, would it make a good movie or not? So first question, entertainment value, what do you got? Are we out of five? Yeah. Entertainment, three out of five. Yeah, I've also gone three out of five. Yeah, me too. It's kind of middle of the road. I suppose, like we said, maybe it wasn't written to be a thriller. Was, uh... Yeah. Characters? I would go three out of five as well. I think they had some interesting features, but yeah, compared to some other books out there, there are ones with more interesting characters. I'm going to go four, partly because I don't want to just say the same as Rory every time. I like the characters and I'm conscious that it's supposed to be, I think, completely based on true life. So I think for real life people, actually, these are quite interesting characters without them being built up for the purpose of a story. That's a good point, actually. I've gone two on characters, actually. So we, that completely divided us, but you're almost talking me into a higher score there, Mary, but I'm going to stick to my guns on that. Unput down ability? I'm happy to go first on this one. I've actually gone four again, which I think is higher than my big short rating, which is probably a bit controversial. I think that I like books that move quite quickly. I like books that stuff happens. And in this book, it felt like actually you moved quite quickly through time. So you could almost see it as a film in your head as you read the pages. Whereas The Big Short had a lot of description, which I know appeals to a lot of people. But I think for me, it was easier to read this book, actually. I gave it a two out of five on, on put down ability in terms of it wasn't one of those where like I read a chapter and I was like, I've got to read the next one. It was one of those I'd read a chapter and I'd enjoy it, but then I'd be quite happy to uh, get up and go do something else. I was with you on that, Rory, actually. So my take was two for unput down ability as well. So accuracy then? I think four out of five. I think, I mean, it, to me, it was quite a good explanation of what hedge funds do. That's my knowledge about what hedge funds do. The explanations you could follow. But the reason I wouldn't go as far as giving it a five is I still had that feeling that there was some stuff being unexplained and maybe that just sort of reflects the access that the author got. So yeah, I give four out of five on that one. Yeah, I also went four out of five for very similar reasons. It felt to me that the author had accurately depicted everything that they knew, but perhaps there was more to the story that people weren't willing to share and therefore it couldn't get a five, but it felt a bit mean to give him a three for stuff he didn't know. Yeah, I'm with you absolutely on that. I've gone four as well. I and mean, I think that's why we all bought the book, isn't it? To try and get some insight into the real story. And there was enough there, I think, to keep those kind of people happy, even if you're never going to get the whole thing. Good movie or not? What do you reckon? I think I know what you're going to say to that, Mary, but go on. <laughs> I think it would make a good movie. Yeah. I sort of saw a movie as I read it. So yeah, works for me. Depends who they get to play Simons and Merce. If they get good actors for that, then yeah, I think it would be good. You've probably got to get them aging, haven't you? So we're thinking like more of Christian Bale to start with, and then it evolves to more like a George Clooney type character. And then it goes to more, I'm not quite sure, but that would be the transition, wouldn't it? 
I feel like an Anthony Hopkins or someone like that. An Anthony Hopkins, that's it. Yes, yeah, yeah. yes, that's the one, isn't it? Yeah. Maybe they'd have to use, I don't know if you guys have seen The Irishman, but the anti-aging technology they use on that to make Robert De Niro look young. I don't think Robert oh, De Niro yeah. would be a good fit for this. No. no. And yeah, no, that was really weird, that the anti-aging technology in that film. But Yeah, I agree. Maybe they'd have to do something like that, given the time span. Yeah, I mean, I reckon they could pitch it as sort of a bit of a cross between it's a bit of a goodwill hunting, a beautiful mind kind of type vibe to the first part of it, maybe, is how they would play that. And then I don't know if there's a little bit of not quite Wolf of Wall Street, but like a little bit of kind of, I don't know, Gordon Gecko almost Wall Street kind of to the latter part of it. And then I don't know about the the election bit. That's just a little bit without without parallel. So maybe there's almost three different parts of the movie. So yeah, I could see it working as a movie just because you got that election bit there. It's the big hook. Beautiful mind thing's got me thinking maybe Russell Crowe would be quite good as Jim Simons. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he could be kind of sort of quiet. Or would he actually be the more the Bob Mercer type, the kind of when he plays that sort of quite quiet. Almost like brooding. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. Great. So that's been a fantastic discussion there. And so just before we wind up, Rory, we want to make sure we get a chance to do the usual lightning round. A slight modification to that one this time. I'm going to give you a list of things. And for each of them, I want you to just quickly throw out a quick take on whether you think it's overrated or underrated. Okay. So quantitative investment strategies. Underrated. Bitcoin. Overrated. Tech stocks. Overrated. Economic forecasts. Overrated. Ooh. Risk models. Underrated. Actuaries. Um, I was about to say overrated, then I remembered I actually am <laughs> Don't say underrated. You can put yourself as overrated. That shows a great level of humility if you're going to prepare to say that you're overrated. AI. Underrated. And Rory, just to finish on, have you got any recommendations for the readers, books, films, podcasts? Yeah, so for books, I put down Super Forecasting by Philip Tetlock. And obviously, this book's had a bit of controversy recently because Dominic Cummings talked about it and sort of in, in relation to, I can't remember the name now, but that aide who was hired who had the bit of controversy about it. And I sort of felt the book got a lot of bad press because of that. That was sort of quite unfair I just found it really interesting in sort of the way that people assess the likelihood of future things. And maybe you should check that the person you're hiring is not a racist as well. But yeah, that's a really interesting book. I've started that and I haven't finished it. And you just reminded me I should pick it up again. But his basic point is that there are some people out there that are reasonably good on average at forecasting stuff, right? And that you can sort of identify them and they have a sort of process, but they might not all sort of look the same, so to speak, or come from the same university or have degrees in certain areas and stuff. So you've got to go f- further afield a little to find people. Yeah, I think it's sort of the way of thinking and sort of like being willing to sort of adjust your views and how people, once they start arguing for one thing, if they get evidence to the contrary, sort of stick with that initial view was one theme in it. Another interesting thing that I took from it is when people say, do you think this event's going to happen? And someone says, reasonably certain. People interpret reasonably certain lots of different ways. And there's talk about, I can't remember what it was, but it was something, a US military decision. And the president asked sort of the various military generals, do you think this is fairly likely to happen? And they sort of said yes. But then afterwards, when the researcher in the book asked them what they meant by fairly likely, some people thought that meant a 50% chance. Some people thought it meant a 70% chance. Some people thought it meant a 20% chance. So using more precise language or if better figures was one of the things that I took from it as well. Great. Right. Any other recommendations? 
can't not mention Tiger King if you've not seen it on uh, on Netflix yet. It's the perfect way to get through lockdown is, yeah, with Joe Exotic. Fantastic. Super. And then Rory, if listeners want to find you, you have your profile on the LCP website. Is that right? Is that the best way to get in touch with you? Yeah, there's my profile on the LCP website or um, LinkedIn as well. Yeah, feel free to get in contact. Great. And final question, what do you think is the most underappreciated thing about investing generally? I would say, and sort of harking back to the episode you did a few weeks ago with Zoe, a lot of the cognitive biases, but I'd say particularly status quo bias is something I see a lot when advising clients. And because something's already in place, there's always the fear of moving away from what you've already got. Yeah. And sort of the thing where the new idea gets questioned a lot, whereas the existing 100% of the allocation maybe doesn't receive the questioning it should deserve. Yeah, absolutely. Great. Fantastic. Well, Rory, that's been a great conversation. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. It's been very good. Thanks, Rory. That's all we've got time for on Investment Uncut. Thank you so much, Rory, for joining us. Join us again next week for another episode. Our podcast is for information and marketing purposes only and does not constitute any form of investment or financial advice. For more information, please refer to our marketing privacy policy on the LCP website.